Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. So this episode features landslides, and landslides can occur almost everywhere, but why? In this episode, our esteemed returning guest, Sebastian Lobo Guerrero, describes what landslides are, how they occur, and what effects it has on our natural environment and our society. Oh, and of course, Sebastian mentioned some really cool remediation and prevention tactics. But if you're unfamiliar, Sebastian has his PhD and practices professionally as a geotechnical project manager and laboratory manager at Aegis Incorporated. In 2020, Sebastian was named as the Civil Engineer of the Year in the Pittsburgh chapter of the American Society of Civil Engineers and has many esteemed accolades. It's hard not to mention that he has over 100 published papers and presentations all over the world on geotechnical engineering and has 21 years of experience and counting. He is also the former chair of the Pittsburgh American Society of Civil Engineers Geo Institute and the former director of the ASCE Pittsburgh section. Right after our last recording in 2021, Sebastian earned another distinguished award, being the American Society of Civil Engineers Lifetime Achievement Award. Now that's a big time recognition. So now that you've been introduced to the topic of this show and my dear friend Sebastian, we're going to head into our first commercial break. But hang around, because when we come back, Sebastian and I are going to be sliding into an intro in landslides, as well as a commemoration of the great Dr. Vallejo. Stay tuned. Well, Sebastian, welcome back to the show. I know it's a new show now. It used to be a Woke Talk podcast whenever you were here. You were on the fifth episode, right? When we were talking about sinking cities. Yes. Welcome back. No, no, thank you. It's always it's always cool to be back. And yeah, I love the new name. I love I love everything that has happened in the last year. I think we talked last time on July, maybe, or August of last year. It was middle of the summer. So a lot of good stuff. And it's yes. it's great to connect back. Absolutely. So what how's life been treating you? What's what's been going on with you? Good, good, good. I mean, I think uh keep doing the same kind of projects. Uh, you know, here in Pittsburgh, a lot of landlines that we're going to talk about today. Uh, other interesting projects in, in Alcosan, which is the, you know, the local wastewater plant, doing a lot of piles, foundations there, uh, also foundations for bridges. And also extremely excited that now, you know, conferences also have kind of resumed to, to normal. So traveling a lot these days, which I always like, you know, to different events, still being very careful on, as much as I can, right? But, but yeah, but it definitely is nice to to go back to these kind of things and learning opportunities. Did you just go back to Colombia recently? Yes, 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 ah. yes, yes. I was there. I was there about, a, I don't know, probably like a month ago. And then I was in Charlotte and then I was in Atlantic City, New Jersey for another conference. And yeah, wow. <laughs> between virtual and in person, which is great because I mean, I do like, I do love that, right? I mean, going and networking and seeing people and sharing what I know and, and also learning a lot because that's also when you learn, right? When you go to those things and see others. I think that's the part that I like the most. Oh, absolutely. And aren't you from Bogota, Colombia? Or is, is that just because I know we talked about that quite heavily uh, in the Sinking Cities episode. I don't know if that is that's actually where you originally Yes, yes, from. yes. No, I am. I am. I am from Bogota. Born, yeah. born and raised there and, and lived there until I was 20, 22 years old, then came to Pittsburgh. And now it's half of my life. Hard to believe that. That's awesome. So yeah. today we're going to be doing uh, doing a dedication portion to Dr. Vallejo, like 
literally a legend at the University of Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, in my short term at Pitt, I had no contact with Dr. Blejo, which is which is quite sad. But I've heard such profound things from from everyone, which is great. So, because I know you have really close ties to them, right? Yes, 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 and and that's probably really the the, the only sad thing that has happened in the in the last few months. Uh, he passed away very recently. He was in Colombia. He retired from the University of Pittsburgh uh, about two years ago, and he was traveling around. He had a property in Colombia, and he was spending time there. He ended up going to the hospital. Uh, he was not feeling good, and they discovered a, a cancer, and, and it was in a very advanced stage. So I was lucky enough that I was able to see him in Colombia, like about a month ago, that I say. Uh, and I did have my final conversations with him. Uh, then he came back to Pittsburgh and, and unfortunately passed away like three days after coming back. It is very sad, and, and but at the same time, I guess we're going to focus not on the sad part, but more on the on the good side, which is what he did, right? And, and what he meant for many of us. That's really what we want to, to do today. Uh, like a short story, I, I, I met Dr. Vallejo more than 20 years ago when I was in Colombia. Uh, he's the only reason that I'm in Pittsburgh. I mean, he is the person that brought me here. I mean, we could have a whole episode about him, so I'm, I'm going to try to to just hit on the highlights. But I met him while I was doing a slope stability class in Colombia. I, I discovered slope stability as, as something that I like since I was a kid. I mean, my, my dad was a contractor, and I love going to different construction sites, highway construction, and seeing the slopes. I don't think at that time I identified what was slope stability, but I just love these rock cuts and, and things like that. Um, you probably have seen a picture of me as a kid, like with my camera taking pictures of those. Uh, but anyway, so once I started college and, and I kind of started learning what was geotech, because initially I didn't know what geotech was. I thought I was going to be construction management. That's what my dad used to do. Uh, but I discovered geotech and I ended up taking a class, which was, so this is the spring of 2001. I ended up taking a class that was called slope stability. And, and it was an introduction to slope stability. And Dr. Vallejo was going to Colombia during the summer to teach a class that was called advanced slope stability. Um, so I end up taking that class and it's a, it's a story, as I said, it's a story for, for another podcast because it's, it's too much. I mean, like I was not even supposed to take that class, but at the end, and he was not even supposed to teach that class. It was somebody else from Georgia Tech that was supposed to go. This person canceled at the last minute, uh, because the Columbia situation at that time was not the safest place. So this person canceled and then they kind of contact Dr. Vallejo because they you know the professors back in colombia thought well he's from colombia so he should have no problem coming coming to colombia right and he did and then i was not even supposed to you know to take that class because it was a summer class 2001 and this is true man and, and, and there is no shame on saying it the professors really wanted to be there but it was a very expensive class and then somehow they created like a scholarship for that particular class and the requirement for the, let's say it was a scholarship for undergrad students. And I was an undergrad, but I was also the only undergrad that the semester before took the slope stability class because that was a graduate course. Other words, it was basically as a figure just to get me to, to take the class. And I applied like the Friday before the class and I got it and I studied the class. And it was it was just a summer class. I have a lot of fun. I met Dr. Vallejo there. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we became friends because I love everything he was saying. and. He was extremely impressed with me because of the fact that I have all the geotech software that he was talking. The part that he never realized is that in Colombia, 
it was no copyright at that time. So you could go to any place and buy all the software that you want in a CD for like a dollar. You know, so <laughs> he never knew that part. So he always was wondering like, wow, this kid loves his love stability and has all the software. And he always thought that it was like with my own money. And I never even realized that that that, that was one of the reasons he was impressed. I, you know, I, I thought yes. everyone knew. I mean, that was naive on my side that I didn't realize that, you know, that copyright was a big deal, right? So I met him there and life just works in mysterious ways. When he was in Colombia, he got notified that he got a grant from the National Science Foundation. But this was already, I believe, July. He had no chance to get a student to work on that grant, right? Because in this country, obviously, applications go way in advance. And by April, May, everyone knows where they are going to be during the fall, right? So one day when, when we were finishing one of these summer classes, he asked me to stay you know, after the class, and I did. Uh, and then uh, with absolutely nothing else to say, he said, I'm very sure that you love geotech and you love slope stability. What about coming with me and doing a master's in a pit? And, and I just remember thinking like, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's the opportunity of a lifetime, right? But like, I, I was still finishing my undergrad. So I said, yeah, I mean, I'll finish, right? In six months, I, I still had six more months to go. I was doing like a dual program. So like during my undergrad, I was taking a lot of advanced classes. So once I finished my undergrad, I could stay just for like less than, a, I think a year, and then I will have my master's. So I say, let me talk to my professors. And then he say, no, no, I need you like now. I need you like in two weeks in Pittsburgh, right? And then I thought like, man, that's impossible. It's like, how the hell? Keep in mind, I used to have long hair, you know, 22 years old, didn't care much about many things in life. I was up for, actually, it's like the guy that you see on the left of that picture, yeah. right? With the long hair. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, let's, let's give it a try. And I talked to my professors there and, and they were, they were super understanding. And they say, let's try to see if we can work out uh, because of, I have so many like advanced courses that I shouldn't have at that point. Uh, they were able to give me credit for like, I think I still have to take like a couple easy classes or something like that, that were not even in engineering. And they're like, we'll give you credit for that. And I still have one more class that I needed to get. So we agreed that I was going to do a project in Pittsburgh while I started my master's and they will give me the credit mm -hmm. there. I mean, long story short, and, and I guess the essence is that when I came to Pittsburgh, it was not like I have everything figured out, right? I mean, I did not have my degree yet from my undergrad. I still have one class that I needed to take. So Dr. Vallejo came and appeared in the picture and basically waived any kind of requirements. I mean, he saw the the interest that I have, and I guess he saw some talent in me that I was not even aware that I had, and he bent all the rules. I mean, I just remember, you know, when I started, you have to take a PID. This is 20 plus years ago. You, when, when you arrive, you have to take the Michigan test, which is an English proficiency test. Uh, I was super nervous. I take it, and I suck on it, man. I mean, it's like, literally, I got recommended for four classes of English before I could start engineering. And then Dr. Vallejo was like, well, that cannot be right. This guy speaks. I mean, obviously, I got nervous when I took the test. I mean, imagine yeah. coming from another country and like the day after. He went and talked to Dr. Quimpo, which was the, the chair of the civil engineering program, yeah. uh, and explained. And then we went and talked to, at that time, was the dean of the School of Engineering. And then Dr. Vallejo said, I'm putting my name on this guy. I can guarantee he's going to have no issue. So we actually went, and they allowed me to register. I still have to take my four English classes but they allowed me to take them at the same time that I wow. did my engineering classes. So it was amazing that the first few semesters were hard, but he completely put all his trust on me. And 
even he presented in a way that I didn't even feel that I have the pressure, right? I mean, he was like, don't, don't worry, you know, you will be fine. And, and I was fine. I mean, and, and then for the next five years, I, I did my master in year and a half with him. Then after that, we, I, I was very happy with him and he keep getting money from different grants. So we continue working, doing research. Uh, I stayed five years of it between master's and PhD, one and a half on the master's, three and a half on the PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, we published 20, 20 papers together, which I, still is amazing. I mean, there is more papers that many faculty actually had at that time. It was great time for me. It was great time for him. At that time, he was promoted to, to full professor yeah. uh, with all the research that we were doing. And it, it was great memories of my life. And I think it was also great memories of, of his life. Uh, as a person, he was also the most candid and inclusive person that you can imagine. When I was coming to Pittsburgh in this rush of two weeks, right, of, of while we kind of did the deal in Colombia and then I ended up coming here, uh, obviously I didn't have a place to stay or anything when I came. And he was in vacation with his wife, which appears Mary, and Johanna, which is his daughter that he's, you know, Dr. Ballet, who is kind of lifting in the air. And, you know, they were going to Cancun. And just look the quality of person that he was, that he told me, I will leave you the keys of my place, right? With wow. a grad student. And that grad student is going to go and pick you up at the airport. And then you can stay on my place and, you know, try to go register at P, do any kind of exam that you need, which was that Michigan exam that I failed. Get the thing together and then I'll be back in a week and I'll help you find a place. And I did that, you know, and, and I stay in his place for like a week, uh, walking to the university, coming back. Then once he came back, his wife actually helped me to find a place, which was not easy. If you arrive to be two weeks before the semester starts and you yeah. try to find a place, it's almost impossible. But yeah, we did that. And then through the years, we remain very good friends. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the images, is kind of tough. But, you know, one that we have there is uh, we want the AS, the American Society of Civil Engineers, Geo Institute based paper on numerical modeling, which is a huge deal. And we won it in 2006. And I think it was one in Atlanta, in a conference in Atlanta. And I just remember all the joy that that we had together because this was kind of like at the end of my PhD. And that paper was really, you know, is the effect of the pile shape in particle crushing. Nothing with landslide, but it's still foundations. And, yeah. you know, and, and I just remember the joy because it was like, we did an amazing thing, right? In five years, uh, we took this research, we papered this paper, you know, we published all these papers and, and we even mm -hmm. got an award. So, yeah, so that was very special. And I still have it. I think it's right here. If you look at it, it's like I have it right on my award oh. shelf over there. Nice. And it has both our names and all that. So, yeah, cool memories. On other aspects, he was the one that introduced me to pit football. I didn't know anything about, you know, pit football or anything like that. There is no American football in Colombia. So, yeah, uh, we went to a lot of games together. Also on basketball. Those also were the good years of basketball at Pitt, like, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, so a lot of good memories. And... Um, as I said, I, I was very happy that I got my, when I was in Colombia, you know, I don't know, a couple of months ago, more than a month ago, I was very lucky to see him twice. And, and the second time that I saw him, I think he knew it was the, the end or the end was close. I was not aware. I mean, I always, I thought that he, that he was going to have more time. I think at that time, the doctors have already said that obviously it, it was a liver cancer and colon cancer. So you cannot survive that, right? I mean, and we all have lost people due to those cancers and, and we probably will lose more. But, you know, I mean, at least we thought we were going to have a little more time. Uh, that's what I thought. I think in his mind, he knew he was probably not going to have. And the last thing that we talk uh, just really showed the person that he was. And, and, you know, he told me, like he was connected with me, like on, on Facebook and 
I don't think on LinkedIn, but at least on Facebook. And he always look at my post, like, you know, the, all the projects that I do and, and all that. And he always leave me a comment. And at the end, you know, like he said, I'm very happy for you. It was like a strange comment because imagine that you are saying bye to someone and say, I'll, I'll see you in Pittsburgh, right? Like say flight or whatever. And then he say, I'm very proud of you. And, and I do enjoy a lot everything that you have accomplished. Uh, and he even commented because I, I received the Lifetime Achievement Award last year from the American Society of Civil Engineers. And also last year I received the Civil Engineer of the Year Award from, from the Pittsburgh section. And yeah. he kind of broached on that and he's like, it's, I think for him, he was saying that it was amazing to see in 20 years, like what happened to my life. And obviously it's all thanks to him, right? So I think it was, I, at that time, I didn't realize it, to be honest. I, like, I think also you have like a defense mechanism that you don't want to think about those things, right? You, you are never going to think this is the last time I'm seeing him. You, you just yeah. want to say like, you know, I'll see you. I told him, I'll see you in Pittsburgh. I'll, I'll visit you as soon as you, as you come, which I never had the chance. But I mean, I think it was a goodbye that, I don't know. It, it was emotional for me. I, not at that time, right? At that time, I, I was very close and think. But after mm -hmm. he passed away and I kind of keep reminiscing about the moment, I completely understood. And, and I really saw what he was trying to say. And, and I mean, I'm very glad that he got to see all that. And, and I'm very glad that, you know, he was happy with me. And, and, and the part that said that it represents so much is because I'm only one story, right? But yeah. don't think that Dr. Vallejo was just me. There is like many many people that can tell you exactly the same thing that i'm telling you right now mm -hmm. so he helped so many of us i opened the door i was the first one that came from from colombia after dr vallejo taught that class there were probably 10 of us after that and, and it's the same story i mean is he going above and beyond for people and getting really good students and you know in my opinion those were some of the best years of pete geotech because we were doing so much research he was he was bringing so much money from different foundations and and things and and it, and it was great and, and you know I, I always say that dr vallejo was the definition of inclusion and diversity even before those were things right i mean he he always welcomed everyone as i said he welcomed everyone in their house with absolutely no problem and he, he always had that happiness and that that humor in in his life i, I mean he passed away and I put all, you know, like all these posts on, on, on social media. And it, it for me, it was overwhelming to see the, the number of people reaching out and saying the memory they have from, from him. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's life. And we all have our days counted, but it's all about making them count, right? I mean, it's all about yeah. making an impact. And, and in my book, Dr. Vallejo is a pretty cool guy that, that have a deep impact on, on many of us. And, and as I said, he was the one that also... Uh, got me into the slope stability profession. You know, I mean, I like it before I met him. Definitely mm -hmm. took him to another level with him. Always only, only best memories. That's the only thing that I have of him. So, yeah. So let's make this episode very, very cool just for him, right? I mean, it's 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 our tribute. It's it's definitely my way to to show what I have done in the last twenty years and what I learned from him. And and hopefully we can motivate more people to get in the field the same way that he motivated me to be on the oh. field. Absolutely. And you know, what's kind of funny. He also had indirect effects, right? Because I never directly was in contact with Dr. Vallejo, but like he progressed the geotechnical like field in civil engineering so much that it, it touched myself and, and many generations of, of civil engineers at the University of Pittsburgh. You know, he was pretty much the godfather, right? Of, he was. <laughs> of yeah, he was. Yes, he was. He was. 
you know, he definitely left some big shoes to fill for the next person that comes, but yes. I would say so. But yeah, so this, I guess the second half of this segment is going to be on an introduction to landslides. So first of all, maybe we could start out by this question and I'll pose it to you. You know, what are landslides? Maybe you could go through the type of landslides that are yeah. on the slide, you know, for everybody. Yes, yes, So yeah, I mean, basically a landslide, it's, it's a move of a mass, right? It's basically a mass that is typically on a slope or a hill, and then it activates and, and moves down. There are many ways that, I mean, I, I, I qualify them in two major categories, which is rock or soil, right? Uh, the reason is because they behave a little different. But, you know, let's start, for example, with the plot. So you can have rotational slides, which is like a circular failure. That's probably the most common one. Yeah. Uh, you can also have translational that is more like, instead of being a circular, it's more like a failure plane, you know, like a straight line, you know, like an infinite slope. So those right. are probably the two big ones, rotational slide, translational slide. Uh, you can have block slide. Now we kind of get into different names. And, and to be honest, it's not that important to remember every single name, but just to kind of right. give an idea. Block slide tends to be more the, let's say, like a rock slide that you have blocks that are coming down. Not that different from a rock fall, right? I mean, it just kind of depends on the on, on the slope. The toppling, right. that's a little different because everything we have talked is rotational like that or sliding going like that. It's basically shear at the base. Topple or toppling is different because it's more like you have a column and then something mm -hmm. pushes it and then it just goes down. So it's literally a rotational failure, but instead of going like this, it's the top going down. So it, it's kind of like summatory of moments if you want to see it on, on physics, right? So it's like I have this, right? And then I yeah. just push it at the top and then it just goes down. While the other right. ones are more like the, the, the base is the one that is rotating. Right. The reef flows are, are very, very important. Dr. Vallejo worked a lot of his life on the reef flows. Uh, it's basically saturated soils, clays and different deposits uh, that just get so saturated with water that they actually become almost like a fluid. Some could be so saturated on liquid, but they also can even flow on air uh, if they start kind of fluid, like mobilizing very, very fast. Uh, avalanches kind of go similar to the risk flows. I mean, I think we all know avalanches from snow and things like that. So it's very similar. Yeah. Mod flow is like similar things. And then creep is probably one interesting one, which is not these basic movements that we are describing, you know, like translational, rotational, but it's more like the entire profile is kind of creeping or repting very, very slow. So. It, the right. definition of creep is like a plastic flow. So those happen over a really long period of time. So it's not, it's not yes. like you see them. The other ones that we have been described is, is your typical slide that you see next to the side of the road or in Pittsburgh, capital of landslides in the world. <laughs> As I say, <laughs> that's what I live here, right? Uh, you can see this all, all over the place, you know, for different reasons. I mean, the main causes, I guess, to begin with, the main causes are water, right? Uh, and, and I do this as a joke. It's a joke. It may not be a good joke, but I say that water is the enemy when it comes to landslides. And as mm -hmm. humans, we are really doing a great job getting rid of water <laughs> in order to stabilize landslides. So it's an irony, right? It's a joke. Some people don't get it, but yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we are doing a really good job on messing up the whole the whole system. And, and can I can I interject real quick? So uh, just to be a little more descriptive rather than visual, since some people will be listening to this, if you look at creep, right, you'll probably see this. Like if you're ever walking in a park and you just look at the side of the hill and you see that like the base of the tree is like kind of like bent towards where the tree starts to become vertical again. It kind of I don't know. Looks like a really like a like a curved hilt or something like that at the bottom. That's usually the result of creep. 
right? People wonder like, why is the trees, you know, bent like that? It's because it's because the the hillside's literally moving. It's it's. Creepy. Yes, exactly, exactly, and 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 that's a great that's a great point because you see it on the trees since they grow so slowly, right? They kind of rotate, and and that's the evidence, and that's the way that we find them on on the field. You know, just looking at the trees and see their shapes. Right, and okay, so we've covered the types of landslides, and and I understand it like to the, to the layperson, it doesn't really matter, but it's really cool just to see how many different you know failure types yeah. there are in landslides. It's really cool, and you just think of a landslide, you just you know picture what you usually see at the side of the road there's a lot of different things going on but yes and, and it's important to understand them because we'll go in a circle in that because the way that you fix them also changes right correct correct so how do landslides occur right there's two different causations there's the natural and then there's the human influence so would you like to take it from yeah there? i mean there are multiple reasons but to, to summarize them the human one uh, could come in two forms one I mean, everything comes because we mess up with nature, right? So mm -hmm. one easy way uh, is that you remove what is called the toe. So imagine that you have a slope that is stable by itself. Sometimes because of human activity, we come and kind of take that toe out. We do excavations at the bottom. We do something without thinking that mm -hmm. this stabilizes this. And once you take the toe, the whole thing comes down. So that, that's one way that we, that we create them as human activity. Another one is to put load. Right. I mean, if you have a slope that is stable by itself and you load it up at the top, now you're creating more force coming down. So those are two typical ways that we do it. And, and it's interesting because when we go back to the fixes, we are going to go back to the causes. With nature, there is also multiple ways, but just the main ones. Rain seems to be the, the, the most important one. Rain. There are two things that the rain affects. Without getting into very complicated terms, there is something that we call defective stress in the soil, which is basically how much you know, how much weight you have on top, how mm -hmm. much weight of soil you have on top, that gives you the vertical component end up resulting in a normal force that gives you a shear component, right? Yep. The, everything that works on these circular failures or infinite stops, everywhere that we have a failure plane, you know, either a plane completely or a circular surface, the soil is only resisting base, thanks to shear, thanks to friction at that base. And right. that friction is a function of the vertical load that you have. Now, that vertical load changes with water and right. this is just the principle of buoyancy yeah right because what happened is when you saturate a soil why does a soil behave differently when it's saturated the, the the friction angle or the resistance will be the same it's just when you have water you have buoyancy so you have less normal stress right mm -hmm. because the water is the, the water is the one that is picking up the weight the pore pressure is the one that is lifting so if, if you see that the grains of soil they have less normal stress and as a result of that, the friction decreases. So it's extremely interesting. And the basis on, on this uh, is, is exactly just that, is the effect, effective stress. The more water you put, the more you raise the groundwater table, the lower the frictional resistance is on the soil. So when you have rain events, uh, these, like today in Pittsburgh, is the perfect example. Like, you know, April and May, it's the time that you have a lot of rain, it infiltrates on the ground, raises that water levels, and then that activates this light. Now, mm -hmm. that's one way. Another one, so as I said, like a sand, a, a material that is already a sediment, the, the frictional resistance, the friction angle of the material, the, the, let's say the shear between grain tone change. The friction angle remains the same, but the, the effective stress changes because of the water goes up and down. So, but you know, the friction remains the same for the material, the friction angle. However, that's not the same case when you have, for example, rock slides, 
or you have materials that weather down. So let's take, for example, a shale, extremely common here, or a claystone. Those materials tend to be rocks that have some good strength. But the moment that you put them on water, and when you, let's say you, you saturate them, and then you dry them, and you do these cycles, you completely weather the material, right? Yeah. So yep. once you weather the material, your friction changes. And, and I have plenty of, of projects that is like, it was a nice rock slope with a little bit of an angle. You have a, a shade layer that was fine until it was not, until a lot of water infiltrated, completely degrade, completely weathered that, that layer, and it passed from rock into a clay. And then it's just like if you are on a soap, you just yep. go like that. So that's another reason, like, you know, mm -hmm. physical or, or chemical weathering, if, if you have another agent. Uh, and then one of the ones that I see that a lot of the time is, it's also related to water, but instead of being rain, let's say that you have a slope that is stable, and then a stream at the bottom. If the stream end up kind of eroding the toe, it's similar to what I was describing as human activity. You take the support of the slide and things fail. So the mechanisms are kind of easy to understand and common sense. Sometimes it's human activity, sometimes it's nature itself, uh, but, but it's, it's very basic. I mean, it's the part of what I love of slope stability is that I can guarantee you, if you took a physics class in high school, you can understand slope stability because it's a statics of, of blocks and masses coming down. Friction is your friend. And, and that's pretty much, and then the normal force. So that, that in a nutshell is kind of what causes landslides and what we see it. So that's the reason that you see it when there is a lot of rain. You also see them when there is a lot of like streams that, that change level and go up, you know, and, and you also see it when when engineers do things without thinking, right? And, and, and cause, because unfortunately there is a lot of landslides that are caused by human activity without proper thinking behind. Yeah, and, and one other thing that kind of comes to my mind is you talked about, you know, weather or, or rain and something that, that is, is plaguing us is that as time kind of moves on with the direction that we're heading, I hate to, to bring in climate change. I feel like we talk about it with every scientific subject that we talk about, but I mean, it makes sense, right? So, so where you're having weather, right? Say, mm -hmm. take Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania mm -hmm. is a, a pretty wet state. So the wet states will get wetter and the arid states will get more arid, like where I'm at in Phoenix. So what I'm seeing here is that there'll be an uptick in also natural caused landslides over time if the climate continues to create more drastic weathering. Yeah, that's a great point because, I mean, I can tell you, I've been doing this for 20 years now in Pittsburgh, and if I take the number of landslides in Pittsburgh, it increases, right? And that, that's what I'm saying for me now, the months of let's say march april may it's like 90 percent of the jobs that generate for the year because that's when things start failing and and, and it's it has getting worse and worse and worse the more global warming keeps keeping and and, and we keep messing up with things uh and, and the weather kind of pays the price the more we get these excess precipitations right and and, and yeah for landslides it's good for business right but not good for everyone so uh, not good whenever you have to shut down a road for a while. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and District 11, for example, on Pendo, they, I mean, it's amazing. It's like the, the number of jobs that now they, they get. It's, it's insane because it's like how you maintain all these roads, right? I mean, you, the major highways, maybe it's, it's okay, but it's like all these small roads on the hillsides. It's, they do an amazing job trying to get an inventory and trying to keep an eye on, on everything. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, I, I work a lot with them. And I mean, really, they do a, a, an amazing job trying to, but it's just, Sometimes it's like a fight that you like. How can you fight nature like that? 
Okay, so we've kind of mentioned mostly Pennsylvania, right? But mm -hmm. obviously, this isn't just occurring in Pennsylvania. So where else are we seeing a lot of landslides occurring? And maybe you could just give a typical example based upon how we've already talked about the cause. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in, gen in general, like any area that has a lot of precipitation will always have landslides. Let's say rainforest countries, you know, let's say Colombia has a lot. I mean, that's probably the reason also I, I fall in love with landslides because of that. You know, South America has a lot. I have, the, I've, be, I've seen a lot of stuff and, and I'm participating in a lot of conferences in Peru, Colombia, Bolivia, and Brazil. And every time that I attend one of those conferences, you see so many case studies of massive landslides and things like that. But even if, and, and obviously that also goes like into the, into the same latitudes all around the world, right? Uh, but even if you don't go into that, I mean, landslides are everywhere. Like in Alaska, I went to a conference of landslides in Alaska 15 years ago or probably more. Yeah. And, and then you get also, because the rivers there move so much and the weather also is it's so crucial that it, I mean, at this point, to be honest, you have a landslide everywhere that you have a mountain. <laughs> it's, it's bound to happen at some yeah, point. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then you have things like, you know, Peru 2008. I mean, it's like you have massive, massive landslides like that, that. You know, obviously that was a, 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 like a pressure bomb cooking for many years before it happened, right? And, and, and some of these landslides are like that. I mean, some of, of these course. landslides take a long time for that water table to go up or, or for that toe to be eroded or for whatever is happening. Now, the other part that I haven't really mentioned because we were focusing more on Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania is the seismic aspect. But obviously yeah. landslides are triggered by, by landslides because imagine that something is kind of on, on a limit equilibrium and then you get a... An, an earthquake that basically just put inertial forces and just push it, you know, it just gives it the last push that it needed. So you see a lot of, for example, in California, you see a lot of landslides next to roads and, and things right. like that. And, and then on the Andes, Peru, Colombia, all that, I mean, every time you have some kind of seismic event, you have, you know, I, I have a very good friend in Colombia that he's the, he's the general manager for a concessionaire, which is basically a, a company that maintains a road, right, for like years and they collect the tolls and leave from that. Uh, and he sent me the craziest pictures of all the lands that they have to deal with, you know, and, and yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Every time you have rain, every time you have some seismic activity, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fight against nature that it's hard to win sometimes. Right. And, and we've talked about mountains and we've talked about, you know, rain or, you know, really weather intensive areas. But another thing is also these dry, arid climates like, like Arizona where you'll get you know you'll be dry most year but then you'll have a really nasty rainstorm and it creates like flash mud flow because one of the yeah. failure type types that we were talking about was uh right here the the mud flow slides so you could definitely still see landslides in, in mud yes. flow in very no, no. arid places yeah no you're right you're right i mean yeah just because it's typically dry doesn't mean that it's safe right because these flash floods <laughs> mobilize everything and you have these avalanches and the reason and sometimes it's even worse because at least in Pittsburgh people are prepared you know and, and, and they have you know there is many companies that can fix these things uh, but sometimes in areas that you are not expecting them when they happen they are worse yeah. oh absolutely yeah so yeah and we even touched about the time uh, relation compared to a lot of these events like you said that they it could be a you know a ticking time bomb but also it could happen within probably even just a few months within or even a few years right so we're talking about a really broad spectrum uh, yes and, and, and there are some slides that keep moving for years like i work in one here with the company i work for uh which was the new Baltimore landslide it was reported to be moving for 60 years 
60 years and the turnpike they just keep doing maintenance and kind of cleaning the toe like they basically got you know we monitor it for about i think we monitor it for about 15 years you know out of those 60s with different technologies uh, and we concluded it was moving a foot a year and it was very slow movement right and, and everything moves and then you just keep cleaning it and clean it until finally you know it was time to to fix it but yeah so some plants like you know especially the debris flows the avalanches those are very fast some others take 60 years right but they keep moving in a in a fast pace an inch a month and then you also have the creep that could take decades to just move an inch so many types <laughs> absolutely yeah even with just my brief exposure with i, I took an engineering geology course and soil mechanics yeah. was, oh you know the basics yeah it was really fun I, I thought it was really cool i mean i going into it i didn't think there was that many different failure modes i thought that was that was really neat yeah what, what it is it is more complex than initially what you know someone can think it, honestly my downfall in terms of engineering geology was just trying to remember all the rock rock and mineral names <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was my downfall but i thought this was really interesting yes this was a really interesting concept yes but yeah so we're going to take a quick commercial break but then whenever we come back sebastian's going to be talking about the effects of landslides, so stick around. I have some exciting news. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics have teamed up to create Ecolite Apparel. Ecolite Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol, such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. Each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code, and when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite apparel, the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. Ecolite, clothing done right. Okay, well, welcome back to segment two. We're going to be talking about the effects that landslides have on reality. So, Sebastian, we, we did outline a few different things that we really wanted to touch home on. And the first one was site remediation. So do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, part of the the effects of landslides, right, is that you are going to end up with a problem, right? So like yeah. the, the pictures that you are seeing there, the effect of this is like, what do you do? The, the, the picture on the left is a project that I got on in a, in a, you know, in a neighborhood here in Pittsburgh. 
Uh, and what you see, I'm, I'm kind of standing on the road. The rest of the road is gone. Uh, the grass mm -hmm. that you see behind, like if you follow the road, well, that grass was like where the trees are, right? It's just that it moved down. And there were three houses. There were three houses there because the road was going like that and then torn. All that got destroyed and, and went down, the houses were down. So uh, obviously the, the first impact of landslide is, unfortunately, is the loss of, let's say, the well, the loss of life, which is the, the worst that could happen, right? Yes. And that happened a lot. I mean, I, I will always remember a tragedy in Colombia, in Armero in i think it was 1986 or something like that when i was a kid it was a big landslide an avalanche and, and, and basically end up sweeping a whole town those are the words because unfortunately they don't give you much of a warning right uh there are other landslides that you typically start seeing the signs you start seeing the cracks on top for the failure the circular failures that we talked before or the translation failure you start seeing cracks which is the scarp it's always called yes. the scarp the the back of the of the landslide so you know loss of life and then loss of, of property, right? In this case, like those houses. The picture on the right side is just a jewel because it was a job that I was called in Oakland, you know, here in, in Pittsburgh, and you have Cathedral of Learning right behind, yeah. right? So for me, it's like, if you love landslides, you came to Pitt to study landslides, and then you get a job that is a landslide close. Uh, I mean, I cannot tell you how long it took that picture to get the angle so Cathedral was in full, in full swing. So, but basically I'm standing on top. So. Yeah, so that 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 will be the, the first thing, you know, is the loss of infrastructure. So typically, I mean, if a landslide happened in the middle of, of a jungle and nobody see it, is that really a landslide? I mean, it's you know what we said about <laughs> if, a tree, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around, did it fall really? So in this right. case, like yeah, the, the effects are very minimal, let's say, or or could be, could also be really bad. Uh, as some projects that I did in Ohio that were landslides in the middle of of nowhere, but the problem is that they were blocking streams. So then it was a DEP issue, right? Because then yeah. these streams were getting blocked and then they were getting saturated. And then after that, they were having avalanches. So that, oh, wow. that's, you know, that's a different thing. So typically loss of property, loss of infrastructure, closing roads, right? So that becomes either private private property or public infrastructure and, and things Even like that. utilities, right? Like and utilities. Oh yeah, utilities are, are the first ones to go. So, mm -hmm. so and, and I think in that picture, you can also see a pipe coming out. So. And that's really when I come into the picture because that's the reason that I'm called, right? Something happened, a landslide happened, or it's starting to happen, and there is some concern from an owner point of view. Something is being in danger that needs to be protected. So that's really that's really the beginning of things. Right. And there's even so we we already talked about a little bit about the infrastructure. So skipping ahead, there's also the environmental changes. You did touch on it where you said that it could create, uh, you know, future avalanches. So it's doing like a domino effect on us. But that also creates something else that's, you know, kind of vital to, you know, an ecosystem is, is sedimentation, right? Because whenever you get excess sedimentation or waterways that typically creates an effect within the entire chain of, of living beings right from from the top down it you know it blocks out sun kills different you know bacteria and, and different different uh, organisms and then it just creates a whole cascading effect so i mean what other what other environmental changes comes to your mind whenever you think about landslides yeah no i mean i think it's pretty much what we what we said one is that you know you you retain the water and could come into like an avalanche or something the quality of the water decreases yes. significantly right yeah. i mean even uh, because now you're putting saturated mud and saturated you know soils that were not even supposed to be there the habitat changes a lot uh one of the scariest part i mean I, I love doing recons and going to to things like that i always take my son 
to me, you know, with me to, the, to these things. But I, I'm always very careful because you typically see a lot of snakes when, you know, once you have, yes, exactly. So <laughs> there he is. So you also see a lot of snakes and, and a different habitat that obviously things just move for them, right? So they are kind of trying right. to look for, for something. So I remember once in Ohio walking with one of our young engineers uh, doing a recon and then we saw a rattlesnake. And man, it, it was like a huge rattlesnake and I didn't even see it. I was walking and then the guy was like, it was like exactly like Jurassic Park. He was like, do not move a muscle. You know, and I was like, <laughs> like we're in the middle of Ohio, man. It's like, we're like hours driving. There is, you know, what could be dangerous? And he said, he just said like, look on your right and, you know, just try to slowly walk away. But yeah, so it's like, I, I, I love taking my son, but I never take him on the first rig. And I always make sure that it's like projects of the one on the left, that you have an easy way into it, right? I mean, that's another one that is, that is impressive. I mean, just look the mass that went down and you can see those buildings on top. Uh, yeah and, and and this is always a duality because i mean obviously you love the challenge from the point of view of the science and the engineering but it's hard not to feel for the people that are being affected right i mean imagine that you own a condo on that building i mean your life mm -hmm. just and, and and that part that part really is something that interests me not not only the engineering aspect but the personal aspect and that's something that i also try to help the company that i work for we don't take into like homeowner projects it's just because of different liability policies and things like that. Uh, we always want to deal with owners that are more, you know, let's say like companies or, or but it's not like a homeowner because it's it's very hard to, to I don't know, to deal with them. And, and there is different reasons and most companies also have the same issue. But every time that I get a call and I cannot help as a person fixing it from the point of view of my company, I try to go there and kind of guide them and, and give them a path and say, okay, you need to contact this person. Let's try to do some borings. Uh, and I try to advise them because I always feel that it's, it's a tragedy. Imagine that you, and I mean, as I said, I have been doing this for years now of helping different people, but every time that you approach them is, the most important thing that you have typically in your life is your house, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's what you invested all your money that you have been working for years. Uh, and it's it's where your family grows and it, it represents everything right. in your life. And then you have a landslide and, you know, like that picture, right? And completely screw it. So. Yeah, so I'm, I'm always very sympathetic with the with the situation and I try to help them and it's a pretty cool thing and, and I think the word is spread very fast so I get a lot of contact from people that I don't know and it's like a friend of a friend of a friend told me to contact you and yeah nice. even my wife understands when when you know on a Saturday I get a text message like sorry I, I need to go and help these people because you know like I imagine that happening to me so I mean needless to say I would never buy a property next to a hill but <laughs> but that's a different part right but yeah so but but it's it's so that's another aspect that sometimes is not really commented which is the impact on on the lives of people not only the value of the property but it's like how disruptive it can be absolutely yeah like you said it could be a house it could be a business you could possibly yeah, even lose a life the ones on roads like the one the, the other picture that is I'm, I'm standing there with my dad which obviously he was one of my first mentors on on land like roads are different because i think when when you i mean obviously it's public infrastructure but they are, you know, obviously you don't want any of this happening when people are on the road, but, you know, closing a road is not the end of the world and and it's something that can be fixed. And I guess right. we all pay it on taxes, right? But it's not as, as being just one individual having to deal with the road. Right, right, exactly. And it's just also them trying to get to their, you know, their livelihoods or get somewhere mm -hmm. that, you know, that they need to go. So there's a lot yeah. of societal impacts to that. And I don't think, we didn't really talk about that whenever we first met about, you know, the different effects of, of, of landslides. I'm glad that we got to cover that a little bit.
it. Yeah. And, and the last one that, that you and I had laid out here was the economic impact. Because from what I was told yeah, is that if you have a landslide on your property, you might as well just go find a new property and build okay, a house first thing again. you called me, I'm going to advise you. But yeah, typically, yeah, because, and, and I have helped people also giving them like a cost estimate and say like, if I was taking this project, this is what I think it will cost you, not only on my fee, but on the contractor fee. Right. And, and many times the fix is more, it's more expensive than the land itself. There is a whole field there also with insurance. Some insurance are very good. Some insurance are not. Uh, it goes into what is, yes, so <laughs> legal reasons I cannot tell you, but the definition yeah. of an act of God, right? I mean, because this goes into an act of God and, on, and if, if it's something that truly was an act of God that nobody knew that it would happen, but most of the time they are not. There is a lot of issues with, let's say, public utilities that because they are old and they start leaking, they saturate the soil and then it makes a failure on a property. And then right. the owner is like, I know it, my, my property failed, but it's because your utility was leaking. Right. So right. it's your fault and you have to pay. And then the insurance is gonna go and say, well, it's not an act of God, so I'm washing my hands out of it. It's a very complex situation, but the only thing that I can say is, the city of Pittsburgh is amazing it, when, it, when it comes down to responding to, to landslides. I have been involved on many that I can almost tell you that it's not even the blame of the city of Pittsburgh, but they help this, the citizens of Pittsburgh so much that they will go and fix it. And the insurance is also very responsive. Most insurance are very responsive. There is still a few that are not. So, yeah. So I mean, it, it's a positive scenario in the same, but but it's harsh. And 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 many people that I have advised, they have to go through a process that may take a couple of years just to finally get. But I can tell you that there is nothing more satisfying in life than seeing one of these homeowners when everything is fixed. Uh, and like sometimes they invite me just to see the final configuration of things and just seeing their faces going back to normal and, and a landslide being repaired. Most times that you replace a landslide, you end up having with, and, and we'll talk about it in a second, but you end up having anchors, nails, and, you know, and, and piles and all kind of stuff that is geotech construction. And I always kind of kid around and say, well, I would love to have like a micro pile on my backyard because I think they look cool and anchors and all that. So I don't think they see it that way, but at least their property is back to normal. Right, so I'm just kind of curious based upon, you know, your, your vast career, what is probably the lowest cost that you've ever seen like on a landslide like for like residentially and then then also what's the biggest cost you've ever seen and that could be you know public and private so i'm just i think public public the biggest one that i have seen is uh, probably i would say 60 million dollars was one wow. that which is a massive massive landslide you know what was that, that i true? cannot tell you because it ended up going into a litigation and they can you cannot reveal the cost you know mm. of, the, of the thing but i know how it was because i was working with the with the contractor but i can tell you another one let's say the new baltimore landslide on the turnpike i don't remember exactly the cost but that one was cheaper than the 60 million that probably ended up going for like 35 million it was a lot of material that has to be removed uh, but obviously those are big ones right you also have i would say residential it depends if, if you are talking a small residential sometimes can get picks for like 50 grand if it's a small the most common ones that i have seen goes for between 150 200,000 right and it also depends on you know how you're fixing it like what's your what what's what's your plan of attack and that also depends upon your situation like you said there's different ways to fix things depending upon yeah. what type of landslide that you're 
you know, you're having, whether it's a mudslide or a rockfall or a rock slide or, Yes, you know, and, and, and that's my favorite part. And I'm sure we're going to start talking about that in a few minutes, but the fixing, right? That's what I'm here for, the fixing of the landslide. Awesome. That's, that's where the good things happen. Well, I'm glad we set it up because whenever we come back from this commercial break, we're going to be talking all about remediation. Fixing. Yes, that's, <laughs> what we, that's what we like to do, fix the landslides. That's how yes. we make our money. That's how we make people happy. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Okay, we're back for the last segment. Wow, segment three, it's went fast. It hasn't went, it feels like it's went fast, hasn't it? Yeah, no, I know. That's what yeah. happened when you're having fun, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. So so this last segment, we're gonna be talking, like as we set up before, we're gonna be talking about remediation and some prevention. But first of all, I really wanna, you know, put a little emphasis on the slides that we put together. I know, bear with us, you know, audio people. We are going to try to be as descriptive as possible, but I would like for Sebastian to go through some of these sure. slides and just explain it a little bit because they're really cool images. And also, of course, you know, we got Sebastian in each one. And, and every single one, yeah. And I have to give the little disclaimer that obviously I love these projects and identify with them. And I always like to take the selfies and put it on LinkedIn and on Facebook. And if, if, if someone is seeing this and uh, or listening and you are not connected, make sure that we connect on, on LinkedIn because I definitely love doing that. And, and sharing yes. things. So yeah, so just bear with me if you see me on all the pictures. Uh, just it's it's just my thing, right? I just appear right. on all of them. Oh, so, and uh, if, so actually, if you want to connect with Sebastian, you can go to our website and go right to like this episode's page, and then you can click on connect with Sebastian. It's right with his uh, with his bio, and it'll take you right to his LinkedIn page. So it's it's excellent. just. A, I try to do that with all the guest stars. Awesome, that way, awesome. yeah, yeah. Get a return favor somehow, right? Yes, yeah. no, appreciate it, appreciate <laughs> it. So yeah, so let's get it started. So the first one is deep-seated failures. So deep-seated failures, as the name say, is deep, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So what we see on the pictures, for if somebody's not not watching the, the YouTube version, is you have a mass that start moving, you have the scarf, you have a very thick, it could be the circular rotational or it could be the translational that we described before. Generally, those are triggered by water, by you know the groundwater going up, decreasing the effective stresses, decreasing the friction, and then this this going down. The deep seated are the ones that are probably sometimes more difficult to to manage because you can see the size of those scarves on the picture, right? I mean, 10, 15, 20 feet. So obviously, when they mobilize, the damage is is done. So we will go back into that when we talk the fixes. 
Yeah, this one also, uh, it's also a very deep-seated failure. You can see the circular failure. You know, that's the king. Circular is the king on deep-seated failures. Uh, the same thing that moved down, it finally reached a state of equilibrium once it started traveling and kind of like mm -hmm. it stopped the movement. Uh, a typical sign that you see also is that not only is a circular failure like going down, but typically the scarp is also circular on a plan view. So like the right. picture that I'm standing with my dad, you can see that circle around us or the picture with my son, you can also see that, that circle. So yeah, so these are deep-seated, you know, deep-seated failures, which could be deep pocket fixes if you want to also see it that way. Uh, so yeah, so let's see the next one. Yeah. Uh, these are more like, you know, miniature versions of the, of the deep-seated. They probably are more like, we call them shallow. The mechanism could be similar. Most mm -hmm. of the time, the shallow ones tend to be planar rather than circular. But mm -hmm. in some cases, you can also see a little bit of the circle. Like this one that, that I'm standing there on the scarp and, and, and Michelle, one of our engineers, is standing on the block, which is sometimes it's not very recommended to do that, but I guess for the selfie. Uh, <laughs> you know, that really, you can see the, the, the block that is coming down. It's not as thick as the other ones. This to me is a shallow failure, but you see a lot of resemblance to the deep seated. So you can call it like a miniature deep seated that could be shallow. Shallow tends to be like the, the flat, you know, translation. All right, let's keep going. Then we're moving now into rock slides. Rock slides mm. tend to be, when you have a, pu a pure rock slide, they tend to be more on the translational aspect, not the, not the circular. The circular is on rock slides when the material is so broken that it behaves more like a soil. The picture on the left is one of, is one of my favorite pictures that I have on a rock slide. Uh, it's basically a block that is moving on, on top of a claystone layer. The claystone mm -hmm. layer ends up weathering down to literally clay. And then this block starts mobilizing. And I'm standing on the, you know, like mm -hmm. on the back. So this kind of failure it, is what we call the infinite slope. We call it it's just because this is your physics class from high school or college, which is a block yeah. just coming down, right? And, and, and I love it because you can solve this problem in a, in a napkin. And I can tell you even right. the answer. The factor of safety of this is the tangent of the friction angle of the interface divided by the, you know, by the tangent of the slope. So I can calculate almost in my head the factor of safety for a slide like that. Uh, the one that is on the right side is the same. It's just that it's significantly, it's another rock slide, but it's significantly steeper. Like the, the let's say the deep of the rock is, is you know, it, it's significantly steeper, but it's the same thing. You can see that block right. that is next to where I'm standing. That block is ready to, to come down. So keep these ones in mind because we're going to, go back later on the, on the fixes. Uh, these ones, they are deep, but they are not as deep as the first one for the soil, right? So right. the fixes sometimes are a little easier. At the same time, it's rock that tends to be a little heavier than soil, but so. That was so funny. You were, you literally, I was literally just about to say, just remember, like if you ever studied physics and you, and you see the, the common, uh, the, the common question of two blocks sitting on uh, like on a plane, but the plane is tilted, right? The Like the real thing is just like, okay, what is the angle? What is the friction? And then, you know, if gravity is winning, then you get a rock. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. literally the normal for is W cosine of the angle. And then yep. you multiply by tangent of the friction, right? Yep. And that's your resistance. And your driving is that W times the sine of the angle. And I know right. I may be sounding like a crazy guy, but anyone with a piece of paper in front would see it. And I love it because that's what I'm all about, which is simple physics equations that you can yeah. resolve actual problems. And, and that's what I say. That's the reason I fell in love in, in, in landslides. Dr. Vallejo was always all about that. It has to be simple. It has to be something that your mind can comprehend. Uh, and then th that's the beauty of, of simplicity and the elegance of simplicity. And it's awesome to fix 
real problems with just basic concepts. Yeah. So yeah, all up for physics, man. My favorite subject ever. So yes. Yeah, yeah. So this one is one one field trip that we did with with the entire company, and where this is actually a, a pretty deep seated failure. Yeah, um, it is. And and you know it's kind of a mix between soil and rock because it's a rock strata with a very soft layer underneath that is being mobilized. We're standing on the back of the scarp, and you can see. I don't even remember how the hell we took that picture because. The guy that is taking the picture, well, I guess it sucks because they didn't appear, he or she didn't appear on the picture, but you can see the size of that scarf, right? And you can see the yeah. highway like on the upper left corner. Right. So yeah, so that, that one is a rock slide, but you can see these, obviously the fix of something like that is a little more complicated because of the volume, right? I mean, if you, if you see the yeah. highway below and this is the scarf, just imagine the remaining, the remaining things. Yes, these are some in, in Ohio, which are also, you know, let's say, some kind of like mass movement. This in particular was mobilized by water. It, it's just that it, it saturated those soils and then it was like almost, almost to the point that it was like a mud flow. I mean, you can you can see me standing with my, you know, mold up to kind of like, well, not my knees, but probably a little below. I'll mm -hmm. tell you, that picture was great, but get it out of that mass, you know, walking where the, to the, to the engineer that took the picture was impossible. And, and the part that I like is because on the left, you can see it once was remediated. So, in this nice. case, it was very easy, you know, because I, I think we're getting into, yeah, I think this is the point we get into the fixes, right? I was going to announce yeah, that, but so, I don't want to cut you off. Yeah, this is now. No, no, because I see, I see. Yeah, so this is the easy one to begin. So let's just start in order. I, I got this this question on a conference for Peru, I believe, like two weeks ago, and we were talking about landslide, and they said, in your mind, how is the process of fixing a landslide, right? So like, forget about the technical part, just what is the step-by-step -step procedure? So the easiest way to fix a landslide, and it's not like I'm telling you my secrets because this is like really common sense. So if you have a landslide that is a, a massive something like this, the first question is, can I remove the mass? If I can literally just remove the mass that failed and put it somewhere else, boom, the problem yeah. is solved. You only have one concern. If I remove the mass, is what is behind going to be destabilized, right? So what I'm saying is right. if, the, if the landslide, because keep in mind the other pictures, when you have a slide, the slide typically end up going to the toe and stabilize what is behind. So even right. though it already failed, if I take this out, is it more stuff going to come down? This project was paradise because the, the rock was extremely shallow. This is very low in Ohio, almost in Kentucky. And yeah. so the rock was very shallow. So what we find out very quickly is that we can take all that, all that stuff out. Nothing else is going to come down, you know, mm -hmm. because basically, once I take the, you know, once I take the, the, the material that move out, everything is fine. So that's what we did. Easiest fix of a landslide. You take the material out, right? And then you vegetate it and you are out. So that, that is the first one, right? Can I take the material out? Is there, and, and you know, if nothing behind is going to be destabilized. So did you guys, whenever you went out there, did you take any core samples or did you just literally take, take that piece of equipment, take that hoe out there and start digging? Typically, and then you're typically, like, oh, it's rock. No, so typically we do warnings, you know, we go and do warnings. This one was fast and furious. And then with equipment, exactly as you said, I mean, we were planning to take warnings, but then as we were kind of starting to investigate, we realized like the rock is really shallow. You could see it with the excavator. So that mm -hmm. particular one, that's what I say, it's the ideal job. We didn't even do warnings because, you know, it's like we just kind of start cleaning and it's like, oh, rock is right here. Let's just leave it. Let's just leave it like this. And then the part that I never understand when I see this is the same site. And when I see this comparison, I don't know how the hell that tree in the middle is standing when we fix it, but it's not standing when I'm on the picture. It's like, 
I don't even remember. Did we fix it? Did we put it up again? <laughs> or it's just magic, you know, that just happened like that. Because it should be the other way. It should be kind of like, you know, yeah. or gone. So every time that I do this comparison, I'm like, what the hell? I mean, this was like, I don't know, seven years ago. So I'm always like, what the hell happened to that tree? But That's hilarious. the magic of landslide. So yeah, so let's let's keep going. That's the easiest one. This is yeah. the next step, which is another project, also in the state of Ohio, which we could clean the material, but the problem was that it was not really an easy, well, initially we didn't really have an area of, of putting things, but then we realized that we could locate all the material that failed. It was very shallow rock. We could put it at the top. And that, that was the beauty of it because we ended up doing like a very nice field at the bottom of the hill. And we mm -hmm. basically put all the material, we just compacted. And then we put drains. So typically when you do these things that you are just removing a mass, you make sure that you, you put enough filters and ditches so the water, you know, gets, and you can see the ditch on with the rock, right? So mm -hmm. basically you take all the filter water and you make sure that you have a path so that water can come out. Uh, and then vegetation, vegetation is the key. So did you do any tests to figure out where the water table was in here to establish drains? No, not on this one. Again, this was for uh, for oil and gas and, you know, they were just fast and furious. So we were just literally following where we saw the water coming from. So, oh, like, yeah, you know, I mean... as you excavate, you see like the springs coming out and then every right. time that we saw one, we put a drainage interceptor and then try to connect them. Yeah, oh, this is an adventure that is, we, we did all this work in, in Ohio, yeah, 2015, so seven years ago, and they didn't have time for borings or any investigation. They were like, we want you here and just direct the equipment. You know, and, and so it was exciting. Seven days a week we were working there. So I was rotating. We have three inspectors on the job and I was trying to visit at least three times a week. So that makes sense. I mean, sometimes you don't like I, I ask these questions, but I understand that sometimes you don't need the extra investigation. You can just walk out there and be like, oh, there is rock here or oh, yeah, but, but that's the like, water table. Yes, but th this is like one percent of my projects. Typically we do a proper <laughs> subsurface investigation. We detect the water table with we, we things is you know, it's just sometimes you get lucky, like in that project, but of course. All right. So then, then we move into another way to stabilize them, which is now you realize that you cannot just simply take all the material out. You can mm -hmm. take some of the material out, but you need to remain some. So in this case, this is a project in Altoona that it has a failure and we removed the mass that was below, but we literally could not take the rest of the mountain out. So in this case, we were using deep foundation elements trying to stabilize it, which is micropile and caisson. And the only thing you're trying to do is this. If the material is coming up and it's pushing, I'm trying to do some kind of, you know, imagine a wall that is under the ground or, or some kind of pin that is mm -hmm. just holding, buttressing what you have there. So that, that's one option, which is using these kind of elements. Uh, another option is if you have the space, you can literally just put a rock buttress in front, trying to contain, provide yeah. a toe and try to contain. In this case, you have a, a like a shopping plaza next to it and a little road that passed. So it was physically not enough space. So we right. have to, you know, like just put these structural elements. Uh, the moment that you start talking about structural elements, it's money, because obviously the cost of steel and all that. So we, we tend not to, you know, not to go into that direction unless we are absolutely forced. Because I mean, obviously it's our responsibility always to look out for the client, right? And right. make sure that we are providing them the, you know, the best, the best product that they can have, the more efficient, cost-efficient solution that they need. Right, and maybe I should also bring out the blocks again. So the micropiles and caissons, like mm -hmm. think about those two blocks that are sitting on each other. And we originally had that failure where gravity was allowing the top block to move along the bottom block. 
But with the biker piles and caissons, imagine having those two blocks there and you're and you're pinning them together. You're literally drilling a hole down there or running like a nail or, or something between the blocks and and you know pinning the blocks to each yeah. other so that there's so, extra force against gravity. So yes. you don't have the top block moving. So I just exactly. wanted to say that in in lay terms that way. No, no, yeah, and it's great. I appreciate it because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a shear pin that you are putting there, so you don't depend only right. on the friction of the soil. So, you know, there is, you can put these elements vertical, like caissons, micropiles, but you can also put them in the direction of the, you know, like perpendicular to the ground surface, which they tend to be, sometimes they tend to be more, more effective uh, in the projects that, that I showed you before on the previous picture, you couldn't do it like that. In this one, these are like roads that are, are simple. So it goes back into, into the process. Material cannot be taken out. This is an active road. It, we cannot close the road. We cannot just excavate everything out. So then we just go and start pinning it. You know, we just start putting this, which again is the same principle that you described. Uh, in, in in this case, it's on a circular failure rather than a plane, but it's the same principle. Uh, and then obviously I also have my my son with me. He that you know always goes to these adventures. So this is one in the. This is funny because the picture on the left, I was working when we did the last recording, and I talk a lot about that project. So it's awesome that we now have the picture of the project almost completed with my yeah. son giving the thumbs up that everything nice. is good. So, yeah, so we put nails and we put a steel mesh basically just to connect all the nails and connect the soil and basically just hold everything, stitch it back into, into the slope. Obviously, these solutions also bring different issues, which is do you have the right way to put these elements? Uh, you mm. pray that you don't have any utility, so you're not going to hit anything because these elements can be 30, 50 feet long. I mean, they are, they are long, mm. right? They, they just don't go for five feet. Very so true. yeah, so that that's that's another solution that that we have. Okay, okay. Soil nails, steel mesh. Just imagine uh, you're taking the two blocks, and now you're you're literally the but the blocks are a lot more widened, so you're putting the nails in between them, but then you're also like attaching a blanket in between those nails, a, a really yes. strong blanket. <laughs> exactly, like a really strong blanket, and it also works a little different because before with the micro piles and the and the shafts, they work as shear pins, right? I mean, it's basically this. With the nails, it's different because now it works on the axial direction. It's more like now you're stitching it and kind of like pulling it. You're increasing that normal force by pulling. Pulling this side or pushing that side. So the mechanism for design, instead of being pure shear, is more like an actual, like an actual pull, like a force that goes perpendicular. It also has a component on shear, depending on what country you are, like, the way that I design is I either only account for the axial element or the shear, right? Okay. Uh, so, so like the micro piles and drill shafts, I only design them as shear pins. The the anchors and nails and all that, I design them as axial element. But working mm -hmm. in projects in Colombia, Peru, Brazil, over there is different. They actually take both. And, okay. and, and the reason that I, I don't know, not to criticize anything, but to me, I think there is enough research that we understand that they can work as one or the other, and it's enough evidence that it works. But I don't know if you combine the two and you assume the two benefits at the same time, if they still work the same. I think a lot of research needs to be done to confidently say that the two. So, I mean, at that point, you just start going into what the local code allows you or doesn't allow you and yeah. you try to be conservative. But it's, if, I, right. if it's completely up to me, I would just use one or the other. Okay. I, I, like to, I like to sleep good at night and not get very concerned about my project. So, you know, it's good to, it's good to stick with what you have, you know, whatever well, you know. You know. So well, there you go. So if, uh, whoever's listening or, or watching this and there's a, an opportunity for research right there. Yes, exactly. Boom. Exactly. <laughs> so let's move on here to the next one. 
Yeah, so the next one is something that is also very cool because now we take all the steel out and the cost goes down, which is what if we can remove the mass that was there, right? We can mm -hmm. take it out and then we can put something that something that replaces the function. So this, for example, it's a road on, I think it's in New Brighton. And, you know, basically everything failed and we have to remove it out. Yeah. But then after that, we were able to come back and replace that with a geosynthetic soil slope, which is basically like, I always say, if, if you know Mexican food or Colombian food or any kind of South American, is the definition of a tamal. A tamal is basically the banana leaf, right? And you put like banana leaf and then the corn base and another banana leaf and you make a block and then you eat that. I mean, not the banana leaf, but you eat what is in between banana leaf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is pretty much the same. You put a geogrid or mm -hmm. a geosynthetic, a geotextile, whatever, and then you put some soil, right? Mm -hmm. Typically about foot and a half, and then you put another layer and then another one. And then at the end, what you create is a massive sandwich that is kind of like a block. And then that block can be very steep because it has so much geogrid. Uh, and then you can replace your road. In this case, we also put a face in of gavions, but the gavions really are doing nothing. It's just protecting the face. Uh, and it's really as, as funny as it sounds, it's just more protecting because when you have the geogrid and the geosynthetic kind of wrapping around, anyone can go with a pocket knife and, and create like a, a hole and then the material could get out. Or even yeah. animals, raccoons can go there. So sometimes, sometimes it makes sense to put a face in like this so you protect it. Uh, sometimes we don't use this, but you use uh, like say baskets for vegetation. So basically you just try to grow vegetation quickly so it protects that, that face. But, but geosynthetics is it's, it's extremely cool. I'm actually giving a, a, a class on Wednesday in Peru about this because in developing countries like in, in South America is great because it really it's a cost efficient solution. It also look at this way. It's very manual in the sense that you just need to lay the geogrid, lay the geosynthetic, place the material, compact by hand and keep going. So places around the world that labor is relatively inexpensive, these solutions are really, really attractive. In a country like the US is different because labor here is expensive. So it may be more economical to use a machine or, or use concrete or a shaft or something like that than using yeah. that. So there is also considerations on, on that aspect. But yeah, geosynthesis is something that has revolutionized geotech in the last, I don't know, maybe 30 years, a little more. Uh, but definitely you can see the, the place in the last 15 in a slope stabilization because now we do a lot of this and, and it's great. I mean, it's anyone can do it. I mean, I, I even help friends that they want to expand their backyard. And we design little like GRS walls, you know, geosynthetic reinforced soil walls on their property for feet. You can go to Lowe's and buy a geogrid, right? So that's mm -hmm. that, that is pretty cool in, in, in many senses. So that definitely is a it's a it's a way to fix things, creating this block. And and again, the only thing that you need to make sure is that you know you need, I mean, you 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 have to take the material that is out, that that, that failed, and what is behind you has to be stable, right? Because right. if it's not, then you have to put some kind of temporary wall or something. And the moment that you do that, well, now you're basically paying for two walls. One to hold temporary what is behind and the GRS that you're putting in front. Mm -hmm. So every every technique has their niche, right? And then you have to find out if it's cost effective for that. In this particular case was perfect because you have a rock, you know, you have a rock outgroup right behind the slide. So you could literally excavate down on the slide and the temporary stability was not a concern. It was just like a rock ledge. So. Yeah. Nice. That's why you call Sebastian for somebody. Exactly. Yeah. We find the right solution. Believe me, it becomes a challenge for me every time I sit to a landslide and it's like, what could be the best way to fix this, right? And and sometimes there are multiple ways to do it, right? I mean, one may be a little more cost effective, but you know, it's not like there is only one. There is 
it is different weight. Of course, it's definitely. So then this one is on yes. rock wall. So, okay, so now we're moving into, let's say a rock slide. So it's not the soil, it's more like a rock slide, but it's not a block. It's more like what we defined before the toppling, right? Like, let yes. me just take this again. So it's something pushes and then it's come down. Or, or there is not really a deep seated failure. There is not really, it's just what we call phase stability, which is maybe the rock is, is, is good enough to be cut almost vertical, but with time, little parts and little pieces are going to dislodge and are going to mm -hmm. come down. So in, in those cases, sometimes it's, it's more economical to put a barrier try, instead of trying to treat the entire thing. So right. these two pictures are, are very, very important for me for two different reasons. The first one on the left is right here on Pittsburgh in ASR 28. And this oh, is a yeah. place, this is a place that unfortunately has killed many people, many drivers mm -hmm. passing on SR28 because you have differential weathering. It's the quality of the rock is good to be caught vertical and you have a, a, a you know, a cut there that is vertical, mm -hmm. but you have sandstone and shales and then sandstone and shales and limestones. And every time you have those shales, they weather down with time, right? And then what happens is you have a cut like this, the sandstone phase stays always good but the clay, the clay stone and the shales start eroding and start going away. So you end up with like literally like shelves of sandstone sticking out because the right. support below was completely undermined. And then mm -hmm. they fail, they break. And then it's the gigantic pieces that you can see next to me on the picture on the left. They do their best. They try to shot treat it, try to put everything, but nature finds a way. Jurassic Park reference again. So, <laughs> you know, so things like that happen. Now, the reason that for me this is important is because I'm involved right now on, on, on a small part, but it's still involved on the project that is replacing the fence that is currently mm -hmm. there. But the reason that it's special is because when I took that class that I was talking about Dr. Vallejo 21 years ago in Colombia, he talked a really long time about SR28 in Pittsburgh, and he explained rockfall and you know how do we design these, these fences and all that. Mm -hmm. So for me, Thinking, remember sitting in Colombia, looking about that and looking at that project in this town that was called Pittsburgh, that I have no clue what the, the you know, where the hell it was. And, and then seeing myself 21 years later, fixing it one more time. It is pretty special how things come down. Yeah. So, you know, so it, it, it's very good. And I mean, right now we, we work a lot with a company that's called GeoBrog. Uh, Kevin Coyle is the guy there. And, you know, they, they and Macafer is another great company that also produces these meshes and fences around the world. And these products are, are amazing. And this is what they use on NASCAR races too, in Formula One. These are right. protection fences that are incredible. And, and what we design is we basically calculate the energy of the rocks going down and hitting the fence. And then mm -hmm. we talk to them. And we find out what is their best product to contain the rocks. And we also design the anchors that go on the ground to, for the brakes and, and to basically maintain, the, the, you know, maintain this. Uh, the picture on the right is in Vancouver, in Canada, which is one of the nerdiest trips uh, that I have had in my life, which is we, we work with them a lot and we were doing a project and we wanted to see some of the testing. So they invited me to Vancouver, uh, which Vancouver was cool, but this was way cooler, which is, I don't know, an hour or something from Vancouver. And it's basically a testing facility they have where they take those blocks that you see like behind me, next to me. They take mm -hmm. those gigantic rock blocks and literally throw them and see how the different attenuators and the different fences work. And Whoa. this is insane because it's like, you can see the, the yellow tape. I mean, they obviously have like a safe zone. So yeah. you go there and spend the day just seeing these guys throwing rocks at it. Uh, they obviously instrumental wow. these. So they also have like the computer model next to it showing like the bounces. And cool. that's the way that they prove their product. So so yeah, nice. that trip that trip was one of the coolest trips and that, that I have 
that I have presence and yeah, so it, it's pretty good. It's it's pretty good. That was the GeoRock facility. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool stuff. So the rock slide is kind of the, the same deal as we talked about earlier with the two blocks, but then rock topple is kind of a, a little bit different, right? Because you think about like this having those two blocks, but mm -hmm. like they're they're still they could be on a, a surface that's that's not like completely flat. It could be a little little uh, inclined, but really you think about it like you have a you have one block and then the other blocks like just you know just at the right spot where it could you know teeter a little bit mm -hmm. and it comes down to really just the the center of gravity of the yep. top block right and yes. any influence on that it could be erosion through weathering or it could be a seismic event all it has to do it could be you know just vibrations from roads and over time you know that center of gravity can move out to where you get to a tipping point you have a moment and the overturning moment is too great and it ends up toppling that's what it's, it's exactly that it's just it's just the center of mass moving little left in that case from the from the normal right yep. and boom then it just goes it's 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 you trying to push your friend into the pool right and then your friend <laughs> trying to maintain equilibrium until one point that is just it's gone absolutely and then so, the fence is catching it right right that, that fence uh, you know I, i've driven past that fence a few times and i just i love actually just looking at the design of the fence i think yeah, it's no, so it's, cool it's it's like so for people that aren't seeing this it's uh like there's like circular there's like it's like like steel circles that are intertwined with each other and man that, that i would love to see that simulate no it, it is awesome also because it's a lot of engineering as i say geobrock or macaferry both companies have put decades if not centuries of research on that and yeah. you know and, and and for me i i have attended many courses on that you know on the design of that the philosophy also changed a lot in the last like 20 years before when you talk about a rock fall fence you try to create like a very rigid and stiff element that was containing right so it's basically imagine doing a wall that basically when the rocks fall they contain it but then also what they realize is that that's not the way it's the same as like seismic engineering trying to be a stiff and contain things is never the answer because no. there's always going to be more energy coming down but the trick is more to dissipate that energy so exactly. now these rock fall fences they have all kind of pivots and they, what i was calling the brakes which is when they move then they have these anchors holding back and those circles that you see on the on the cable itself is the rake they kind of just stretch right and when they stretch what they right. do is they dissipate the energy and the idea is that if you have a big event it's going to ruin the fence but that's fine you can replace the fence right but the yeah. idea is that it stretches in the form and it, it absorbs all the energy and they tend to be better than just having a rigid system. So it's the same thing on earthquake engineering when you design foundations or, or, or you know, structures, you don't mm -hmm. want to have a rigid structure. You want to have the one that flexes and dissipates energy rather than, you know, than, than accumulate and fight it. So, no, I mean, th these, th these are professionals that dedicate their lives to design of these things. And, and that's what I said. I mean, like I, I was there for like three days and, and it, it's like a, near vacation on steroids because you go to Vancouver they give you like two days of classes of just the design and all that and then you go at the end and they teach you these fences and and all that so yeah I came yeah. back with a smile on my face and three ring binders so you know heck yeah design that, so so okay so engineer quick taking a look at this right mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm imagining the I'm imagining the rock toppling and hitting the midpoint of the fence right mm -hmm. in between in between the posts so Correct. my thought process is the you're going to see a, a concentric dissipation towards the towards the posts the posts mm -hmm. are going to eat it and it's going to transfer towards the uh the cables the cables will mm -hmm. eat it and then they'll transfer right to the anchor so my oh, right. I, I, am i saying that 
I'm I'm thinking that the anchors would probably would probably take a brunt of that because that's where a lot of energy is traveling towards. Correct, and, and and really the anchor is the one that says like no more, right? I mean, all right. this system is dissipating energy, and that's the reason the rake has that circle because it's basically that circle is when you tie it, the circle disappears, right? It just gets tied. Oh, I see so, the circles. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that that's what is called the rake. The circle just disappears. It's it, like if you are tying your shoe, you know, it just disappears. Mm -hmm. but, but the anchor has to be strong enough, and that's the part that I design is those anchors going on the ground and making mm -hmm. sure that you have enough resistance that then the anchor doesn't just pull out, right? Right. So it, because the rake doesn't work. If the anchor doesn't pull back, the rake doesn't work. The rake then just goes and everything flies into the rock. Right. So yeah, it is super cool to work those those together and. You know, and it's great. I mean, uh, fortunately, we have great companies like GeoRock and McAfee that, you know, it's easy to work with them. And then we can we can do this solution as a team, because obviously the, the, the part that I designed with a software that is called the Rockfall, Colorado Rockfall Simulation Program or CRISP. Uh, what we do is that we simulate these particles coming down and we find out what's the energy that they have when they hit the barrier. And then we work with, with these companies to find out what the barrier that we need. And then they gave us the force on those cables. And then we designed the anchors to withstand those forces so it's a right. it's a very cool product and, and and it's awesome man and every time that i pass next to 28 i feel way more safer knowing that <laughs> we designed those those anchors heck yeah you're, you're out here saving lives for sure exactly absolutely the last portion of segment three i, I was interested in getting some of your knowledge on i know we talked about remediation and prevention another portion of prevention is instrumentation and monitoring you, you yes. spoke a little bit about that at the beginning of the show, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, what comes off the top of your mind in terms of like companies or maybe even your company, like what they do in terms of just monitoring. No, no, these. so we do a lot of that. We do a lot of that because typically the first step when you feel that you have a landslide or you see some signs, uh, but mm -hmm. it's moving slowly, it's to try to instrument. So there is couple, there is couple tools that we can use. Inclinometers, uh, they are called, is basically, let me just get a pen here. So an inclinometer is basically you make a hole on the rock or the soil and you put the instrument, right? Yep. Uh, and then what you do is that you monitor how that is deforming. Before we used to do it by hand in the sense that we make a hole on the ground, we put some casing and we go with something that is called a torpedo and then we lower it and put it up and then mm -hmm. rotate it and do the same. And that thing kind of has a memory and shows you the profile. These days, all this has been revolutionized in the last 10 years. And now it's all, it's all in-place instrumentation. So it's basically you put this, and it's a rod with sensors, right? And they have accelerometers. So when they move yes. in any direction, it could be mm -hmm. 3D, right? They will tell you how much they move. Uh, and that also brings us into the other one that is called extensometers, which is another road similar, but now if it's moving down, this is also showing you if it's compressing or not. So mm -hmm. now that, 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 I mean, I have been witnessing that revolution because when I started, I used to go with an inclinometer and then lower the torpedo, put it up, mm -hmm. go, to, go to the office, download the data, now it's all in place. Uh, there is great companies around in the Pittsburgh region. You have many. Uh, I work with many, you know, so I, it's not like I have favorites, but I would say that all of them are my favorite. You have Geocon. You also have Rocktest. You have Meli, my good friend with Ride Geosystems. And there is plenty of, 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 you know, different companies that offer this and the price keeps going down and down and down. So no, yeah, it also, sure. it also allows us to instrument projects. I mean, right now I have, I have one, slope stabilization that I, you know, we basically are monitoring and it's been two years and a half. And at any point I can just go to the website, log in and see the, mm -hmm. the data in the last hour, right? I mean, it's it's insane. And, and it has all kind of settings, you know, 
for like alarms and things like that. If the movement like start accelerating, you get a right. text message on your phone. So, and, and I mean, obviously the more that we can instrument, the better, right? Because it, it helps us studying them to establish, I mean, that's the way that you also find where is the failure plane. When you put an right. inclinometer, you see where the, you know, something is moving until one point that is not. So that means that right there is your failure plane. And then you can plot many of these if you put them on cross section and you have your, your model right there showing you where it is. So mm -hmm. they're important for investigation, uh, but sometimes they're also important after construction, right? Because you also want to monitor and make sure that things are working properly. So, right. yeah, I mean, obviously it's a cost that has to be taken by the owner and it's an extra product that we always try to bring and say, there is value on this. I think, you know, for it, obviously it's not for every single project, but you know, for the ones that, that is worth it, we always try to show that and say it is worth it that you that you think on that. Uh, and as I said, I mean, the cost is just because the the technology just keep advancing. You know, I, I, it's going to sound funny, but I, I don't know how many people are in the market of accelerometers, but the cost of an accelerometer, if you look the last 20 years, have dropped. I mean, it's something that was very, very specific before. Now you can buy it on the internet for no money almost. So... Right information is the key the more information you can have the better the yeah. more borings you can have the better the more geophysics the more instrumentation the more everything so as all these keep being more accessible i'm sure we can understand better the problems and we solve them better right the more we know about it absolutely yeah you know i've actually had a few spins at uh strain gauges in in my short lifetime yeah i spent a whole semester doing a project uh pierre vincenzo rizzo have you ever met him oh yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 he was, he's a great professor. I had, I had him for structural health monitoring and we, I looked at data from a bridge, like for two years worth of data. And, we, and I was trying to figure out what was going on. Why were we seeing excess amounds of vibrations in, in the roadway or no, you know, yeah, from the bridge? That was really cool. He's doing a lot of cool research and Dr. Harris also doing a lot of cool research oh, at yeah. Pitt. But just to show you how, how old I am, man, I was at Pitt when both of them Dr. Dr. Harris and, and Dr. Rizzo interview. Yeah, I mean they, they were they were almost. I mean, well, no, I think Dr. Harris already was teaching before, but I think Dr. Rizzo just he just graduated, and my last semester it was his interview, and I remember like watching because that's the way that you know they interview the professors and the grad students kind of get to see it, and, mm -hmm. and I guess they also get a feeling if you know people are interested in their research, and, and I remember watching him, and I'm like, man, he's he's working a lot of cool stuff, and and I was like almost out at peace, right? I was on my last semester. So I remember thinking like, man, I wish I could have seen a little more of what he's doing. But so yeah, now he probably has been there for, I don't know, like 16, 17 years. He's already like associate professor and yes. He's doing great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah strain gauges are, are really like you said, accelerometers, I call them strain gauges. They're, you know, mm -hmm. same thing. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, they're in our phones, they're in yeah. literally in the soil. Uh, they're around bridges. They're they're everywhere. You know, just trying to monitoring. You know, just little deformations anywhere where there's a force, you get a deformation. It takes yes. real time data. It puts it in a log, and then you get to see it over time. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, really yes. cool stuff. And yeah, like you said, I mean, the future is bright. You know, the more information that you get, the the faster we can detect landslides, maybe predict when they're going to happen, and also understand. The, a lot of the parameters behind the site. So whenever you get there, you can hit the ground running and and get your, you know, get people like you out there and say, all right, we need to do this type of remediation because this is what's best. We have all the data. It's telling us this. Let's go do it. Here's the cost. 
Let's go. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Boots on the ground. So Sebastian, this was great. I, I really appreciate appreciate you coming back onto the show. Oh, it's, it's going to be our annual tradition, right? We pick a topic once a year and then we get together and talk the heck out of it. So yeah, that sounds great. I mean, you're such a you're such a busy man. It's great to have you back on the show and. And uh, it's always great to hear from you. Always great to you know hear the updates and you know you just keep grabbing these these awards. Uh, I I think uh, Dr. Vallejo is definitely proud of you, man. Definitely. Proud yeah. No. 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 Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I it's always that I, I love what I do. I always did the same way that you, right? So it, it's awesome to to be involved on many professional societies and you know I mean obviously the awards are great to get them. You know I mean it's it's a recognition when you get recognition by your peers. It's it's great. You know it kind of it kind of validate a lot of the sacrifices and efforts that you do. You know, obviously, you never have to let them go to your head, but but it is amazing. I mean, it, it's 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 really a good feeling, and and it's all good. And I'm, I'm very happy that you know that we did this. As I said at the beginning, uh, I hope that somebody is listening to this and get excited on landslides the same yeah. way that I got excited when when I met Dr. Vallejo and kind of fell in love with the field uh, of of landslide stabilization. Yeah, and, and I think it's. It's something cool that you know. Obviously, you also were a student two decades after I was a student with him. So, you know, or or you kind of knew him from Pete, and and, I, and it's great mm -hmm. that you know we can do a little a little tribute to a great guy and, and a great person, you know, for everything Absolutely. that he did for us. So I'm I'm very happy that we we keep this as a testimony and and pretty cool stuff, man. And the pictures are awesome too. So great that we have it now on video. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sebastian. It was all great. right, man. We'll be in touch. Thanks. Bye. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to Sebastian for coming back onto the show and sharing his knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by myself, marketed by Courtney Page and Maria Pusateri, QC'd by Panyapit Erikset, and our episode art was manifested by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Also, we just kicked off our bi-weekly newsletter where we plan to preview the episode release of that week by giving out some facts from the recording as well as some things that we missed during the discussion. And here's the cool tidbit. You'll be able to reply to our newsletter with a question for the upcoming show. Moving forward, we will take one to two questions from our audience and attempt to address them during the show. And lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.